This is Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost on 710 ESPN Seattle. This is Seattle Sports at Night right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. I'm Curtis Rogers, joined by Seahawks insider Stacy Rost here. Stacy, Curtis, happy birthday. I interrupted oh, yeah. you before you could even say anything. You're right. It is my birthday. It is Curtis's birthday today. Today. Yeah. Still a fresh face. I know. 28-year-old. 22 looks great on you. Thank you. Thank you. Still got the my boyish charm yep. going for me. Yeah. It's a good time to be alive. It's also a better time to be a Mariners fan right now as they beat the Kansas City Royals tonight 6-3. to They are now 11-2 on the season. Stacy. I, I know you projected them to be 11-2. and two. I did. I, I, I don't know if we have the audio. We don't need to pull it up, yeah. but I'm pretty sure that that's a conversation we had. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so you being the oracle that you are. Right, right, right. This can't be all that surprising to you, right? Not at all. No, it doesn't come as a shock to me. Uh, personally, um, being probably the most knowledgeable person about baseball in this building. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that this is all stuff that I was expecting. I could see it, but you know, I think for the, the average fan or, or writer, uh, it is surprising considering that they were in a rebuild and not just how they're winning, but, or well, not just that they're winning, but how they're winning. They're setting records along the way. This is an offense that is breaking down major league records. They're a game away for the longest streak to start a season with a home run. Mm-hmm. Hit one again tonight with Jay Bruce in the first inning. Yeah, got it started right yeah, away. Just no worries about that streak the rest of the game. And now all of a sudden, you know, you look at the Mariners record where a lot of people had projected them at the beginning of the season at maybe 70 to 75 wins. If they finish with just 70 wins on the season – that means the rest of the season is going to be really bad. Like we're talking just a 60-win pace the rest of the way or a 59-win pace the rest of the way. And what we've seen from the Mariners' offense right now through 13 games, yeah, it's a nice stretch, but I think there are a lot of positives to take from this. And we're going to get into that coming up in about 10 minutes or so, just what is the most what is the one thing about this Mariners team right now that is most likely to remain true after they come back down to earth? But tonight, a busy night on the diamond, also a busy night elsewhere in sports. So let's get into what is on tonight's timeline as we begin every single show by looking at what's on the timeline. Obviously, the Mariners win in at 6-3 to tonight. They improve on their record-setting start. Team is now 11-2 and on the season. They've scored at least five runs in 12 of those games, and the one game in which they didn't, they still managed to win. Mariners have hit a home run in every game this season, got that one out of the way with Jay Bruce's home run, and they matched the 2000 St. Louis Cardinals with the most home runs through thir- through the first 13 games of the season with 33 Tonight's big stars, D. Gordon, he got three base hits, drove in two runs, also made a couple of great defensive plays in that eighth inning to help preserve the Mariners' lead. And Marco Gonzalez leading all of baseball 4-0 right now. Six innings pitched today, gave up three runs, two earned, five strikeouts, an ERA. About three right now. At the beginning of the season, when Marco Gonzalez got the opening day start, everybody's kind of like, oh, man. Heaping these expectations onto a guy who had only had one decent season under his belt, but right now, yeah, and he started with a few uneven outings, kind of through spring training, um, and uh, I think that that was the narrative that we were kind of hammering down. Right, was like, well, there's there's a lot of promise there, but again, like it's a lot, it's high expectations, and he hasn't really met them quite yet and they were big shoes to fill because I know you know whatever you have to say about Felix Hernandez from last season um, he was for a long time the best pitcher um, that this club had and maybe had ever seen Um, so so yeah I think that what you saw in his last outing especially and in this one um, I think bodes well for their future there absolutely 4-0 on the season he is leading the major leagues and wins by a considerable margin 
Last night, a big night on the court as March Madness came to an official wrap. Virginia beating Texas Tech in overtime in a very entertaining game to win their first basketball national championship. I don't know if you were able to catch it on Monday night, but I did. I watched it on my phone. With the Which March was Madness not on probably app. how it was meant to be experienced. Now, one thing about that app that I'm really curious about is I want to know what their download numbers are leading into the tournament, and then mm-hmm. what their deletion numbers are. Oh, sky after high the national championship. Sky game. high. Well, what are you what are you doing with the, it? There's no point in having it on your phone or no. on your on your uh, tablet, especially if you like a very clean phone. Yeah. I have mine organized in different folders. I don't have time, nor do I have room. For a March Madness app. Yeah. Anymore. But Virginia with years and years of falling short in the NCAA tournament, obviously last season becoming the first one seed to lose a first round game, losing to UMBC. But then they right the ship this year. Tony Bennett, he gets that gorilla off of his back and Virginia winning their very first national championship uh, shout out to the Cavaliers. Shout out to Big Ray Roberts of the Seahawks Radio Network. Mm-hmm. Virginia really excited. Alum. Yeah. Who was Virginia falling to earlier when he was in studio and he he had popped they in to talk to Bob Gross and Tom? To I don't remember who it was. It was it was a late seat again because it was it was a it was early as well. And people were like, "Is this going to happen again?" And I don't remember, but I remember people were kind of rooting for it, and he was in there looking a little nervous. Yeah, but, but now they've got a title. Left happy. Yeah. yeah, so the Cavaliers getting the job done. Some Seahawks news today. The preseason schedule has been announced, or at least the opponents have been announced. Two uh, of the four preseason games, the date hasn't quite been cemented yet. But week Although one, you made a good joke earlier, Curtis. Oh, Don't forget yeah. that. Don't sell yourself short. Oh, thank you. Because they have date ranges for two of the games. Yeah, so week one it could fall in between August 8th through 11th. I made the observation that it was just a three-day long game. Right, exhausting. Yeah, which, I mean, that's going to really take a toll on the roster, but that's what it takes to win. Then, you, you know what? Do it. Win at all costs. Exactly. Uh, but August 8th through 11th, uh, that is when the home game against the Broncos will fall. And then they have two consecutive road games at the Minnesota Vikings, which will be a nationally televised game on Sunday, August 18th. Week three is going to be August 22nd through the 25th. It'll fall in there. It'll be at the L.A. Chargers. And then week four will be a home game against the Oakland Raiders. That'll be Thursday, August 29th. Stacy, when you look at the preseason schedule Anything jump out to you? Uh, you know, not especially given that a lot of these are the same opponents that they always play, typically close out with a game at home against the Oakland Raiders. I know they've been on the road with them before, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think if anything else, uh, someone tweeted at me, not at me, but it was at a tweet that I sent out with the schedule and they just said scrubs because the second game is nationally televised. So the one that's at Minnesota is uh, prime time, essentially. It's at yeah. 5 p.m. kickoff. And I just thought, like, look, I know that the preseason games aren't super fun for everyone. And the number one complaint I always hear from from fans is that it's boring and you don't see starters. But don't forget that some of the guys that are starters now, this was their time to shine. Chris Carson was not a big investment for Seattle. He could have been cut had he not performed well. And in 2017, he had a really good showing as a seventh-round draft pick. So something to consider. Yeah, and I mean, when you when you say scrubs, like it, it's the preseason. The starters are going to play at, in week two. They're going to play at least the first half of the game. Week three, they're probably going to play into the second yeah, half. Yeah, and I week mean, two last year, I think Wilson had uh, like – I don't know, 13 attempts? Six. I mean, you play through a quarter, I would yeah. say, at least. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to see talented guys out there on the field. Also, and... it's free football, man. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Get psyched. What are you Get doing? Uh, I believe in a couple of weeks we're going to learn when the Seahawks schedule is. We know the opponents, but we don't know the exact dates. Uh, the NFL schedule usually releases around the week about before the draft. Before, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to find that out in the coming days. Also in the coming days, Russell Wilson, his negotiations. We'll talk more about that in the second hour of tonight's show. Busy night on the hardwood in the NBA. A couple of legends stepping away from the game. Dwayne Wade, his final game in Miami as a member of the Heat. Uh, If you didn't see it earlier today, Budweiser released a short film uh, that is just absolutely heart-wrenching. 
Uh, it is Dwayne Wade uh, being thanked by a lot of people who he's had an incredible impact on. Um, not just people in the NBA, but people, just regular people in the Miami community. Um, so it's just an, an incredible video. If you haven't watched it yet, carve out about five minutes and also really find a box it. of tissues. Yeah. And then Dirk Nowitzki tonight announcing to the Dallas crowd that he will also be stepping away. Uh, just two icons, two guys who played a lot against each other, had some incredible battles. Dwayne Wade winning the 2006 Finals MVP against Dirk's Mavericks. Dirk repaying that favor in 2011, winning the Finals MVP against Miami. Two of the greats and two of the best uh, players we've seen over the last 15 to 20 years. And then the craziest story of the day. This might low-key be the biggest story of the day. It just so happened to break in the evening. It did. It broke. So we haven't quite. During the Mariners game, Magic Johnson, who a couple of years ago took on the role of Lakers president of basketball operations, well, he has stepped down, and he called an impromptu press conference today. It was first reported by Shams Charani of The Athletic. Uh, but Johnson delivered the news at an impromptu news conference before the Lakers' regular season finale against the Portland Trail Blazers. And get this. He said he hadn't informed Lakers owner Jeannie Buss yet. Like, he was just doing this on his own volition. Wow. I know. Like, that's that would be like somebody hopping on the air here and saying whatever their future career plans are without running it by upstairs. Like, what right. What are you doing, Magic? Wild. And I get that But, he, like, upstairs, upstairs. Yeah. Not even, like, your immediate boss. Like, the The, the top boss. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I get that Magic Johnson in NBA circles can kind of do whatever he pleases because of what he's accomplished on the court and just what he means to the Lakers organization. But, yo... It's wild. Like shout out to Twitter for having yeah, some amazing there was, takeaways. There was a lot of fun tweets uh, at the Lakers' expense. Now, just speaking from a a person that does not like the Lakers, just anything that they stand for. This comes from being a Sonics fan for you know the majority of my life. I love when this stuff happens to them, where they are still yeah, where they are caught with their pants down and. Like they're just searching for answers and they can't find specifically them the Lakers. Specifically, are they the in Lakers. your top five most despised teams? Yeah, or not even despised, but there's a pettiness you have where you're like, I like to see them struggle. Yeah, top three. Them, I think Duke basketball is also in there. What's number one? Number one, probably the New York Yankees. Okay. Yeah, I can't get but all I, very unpopular franchises. Popular in that you can go to like a Walgreens and they sell their stuff everywhere. Yeah. Like they're universal. Like no matter the city but you're in. But also people hate them. Yeah, you could be in like Little Rock, Arkansas right. and you're going to see uh, a Kobe Bryant jersey. Yeah, teen clothing stores at the mall will have Lakers stuff. Yeah. It it drives me insane. That is what is <laughs> on the timeline tonight here on Seattle Sports Tonight. Coming up next though, the Mariners 11 and 2 on the season winning tonight 6 to 3 over the Kansas City Royals. They got two more games against KC before they head home. What is most likely to remain true about the Mariners start? Coors Light text line is there for you. 710-710. Curtis Rogers, Stacy Ross right here. 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio on 710 ESPN Seattle. 15 minutes from now, what is the hardest championship to win in sports? Stacy and I, we were kicking that around earlier tonight when trying to put together tonight's show because of the end of March Madness. You've got the NBA playoffs starting, mm-hmm. the NHL playoffs are starting as well. Uh, over the next couple of days. We were wondering, what's the hardest championship to win? What do you think it is? Coors Light Tax Line is there for you. 710-710. By the way, you can download the Seattle Sports at Night podcast wherever you get your podcast. Apple Podcasts, Google Play. You can download it. 710sports.com. Click on the podcast tab. Scroll down and we're there. Every single hour, every single episode is right there for you. Curtis Rogers and Stacy Rost here with you for... About the next hour and a half, hour 45 here, Mariners winning it 6-3 to three tonight over the Kansas City Royals. I mean, you had just about, it wasn't the typical Mariners game that we've come to know and love over the last you know, two weeks where 
It was 13 to 5 last night, 12 to 5 on Sunday, just these absolute beatdowns. Mariners won at 6 to 3 today. Very standard six run game. Yeah, just your standard operating procedure, run of the mill six run game. Mariners got out to an early 1 nothing lead thanks to Jay Bruce hitting his major league leading seventh home run. Junis in with a sign. Here is the 3 1 pitch. Swing and a fly ball to straightaway left field and deep going back, going to the warning track near the wall. Leaps up. Goodbye, baseball. Jay Bruce with an opposite field home run into the Mariners' bullpen. Straightaway left field. His seventh home run of the season. And the Mariners now have hit in 13 consecutive games to start the year. And they continue to add on their Mariners' record with their 30. Third home run of the season, a one nothing Mariner lead. So they only got one home run tonight. I mean, just no like, big deal. yeah, whatever. I mean, ho hum, one home run, whatever. And you're telling me no Mariners got two home runs in an inning? Yeah, they, did they try? Exactly. Like, where's the bats, guys? Where's the passion? Yeah, like you're just gonna go out there, roll out a six spot win, and make it easy on yourselves tonight? Pathetic. Ugh. 11 and 2, Stacey. They're 11 <laughs> and 2. All the talk that happened this offseason, especially right here on 710 ESPN Seattle, centered around how it was a step back year. It was a year in which the Mariners were not going to compete. It was a year in which it was going to be just, you know, really hard to watch some games. And that could not have been further from what we're seeing right now, which kind of begs the question, is this all a mirage? Is this all something that the balloon is going to pop at any second? Or are we going to be seeing a lot of what we're seeing now in June, July, August, and September? So because I defer to you on a lot of baseball questions and just general inquiries, like, you know, just what do you think about this? I'm going to start with kind of my first thought on this. Okay. And then you can tell me, where you're going with it. All right. Because I think that mine will might be more in line with like an average viewer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first is that uh, with the with the offense, I don't really do I think you're going to hit uh, six runs in an inning or eight like it was yeah. last night. No. Do, do I think that you're going to hit a home run every single game? No, not for 162 games. But I think that the the literally the bodies they have at the plate for the most part, are, are powerful dudes. And, and they're guys that, um, you know, they have trade-offs. A lot of them aren't super fast guys, although you do have like a Malik Smith, Dee Gordon, um, you know, but I don't see that dwindling. And, and one thing, though, that I do wonder with that, and this is where I'll throw it to you on this, how much does the combined record of their opponents so far or the, the, the quality of the opponents they faced factor into – how easy it might be to do that, right? Because you look at the yeah. the Royals are two and eight, the White Sox are three and seven, the Red Sox are three and nine. They have one fewer games combined than Seattle has this season. Granted, Seattle's played more games, but still, I so I mean, are those games with bad bullpens, or are they get are they teams where you know that really doesn't matter? This kind of hitting that Se- that Seattle is showing is something that can that can go against any bullpen. I think when looking at the opponents that the Mariners have played. That is not the Mariners' responsibility. Good teams will beat bad teams. And what we've seen so far is them do that. And they've made quick work of pretty much everybody that they've gone up against. And remember, their two losses, they had a ninth-inning lead in both of them. Mm -hmm. They were two blown saves away. Or, well, not a ninth-inning lead against the White Sox, but they had a seventh-inning lead, and then Corey Gearing came and couldn't throw strikes. But so if someone says, what about the quality of a point opponent? You say, no, 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 that's not even up there. Yeah. Like that's, that's completely out of the Mariners control in who they're facing. And remember, everybody thought the Boston Red Sox were going to challenge for another world series. And that lineup's still stacked. That's the thing. It's not like they're coming in with, with bad dudes and they're struggling to keep it together. No. And I think the biggest reason why the Red Sox are the way they are. It's not because of their lineup. It's because of their pitching staff. Chris Sale is not throwing as hard as he used to. And then you don't know what you've got in David Price. Eduardo Rodriguez hasn't been great. Rick Porcello, he's been you know leaving a lot to be desired. They don't have Craig Kimbrell anymore in that bullpen. 
because they didn't want to re-sign him for the the price point he was asking for. But right now, I think the Mariners look at their schedule and say, look, that's out of our control. We have nothing to do with that. You brought up the offense and how it is almost impossible to sustain this pace, and I completely agree with you. But I will say that I think the Mariners' offense is going to be better than what it was last year because of what we've seen so far, not from the power standpoint, because that also is going to be impossible to keep up. The Mariners are on pace for something like 400 home runs when the major league record was set, I think, a year ago by the Yankees, and they ended up with like 270-something. So to have a record like that just get blown out of the water the way the Mariners are on pace for it, that's not realistic. But I do think the Mariners, and and what we've seen from their at-bats so far this season, where they're going deep into counts, they're forcing starting pitchers to get uncomfortable and get pitch counts that are in the 50s and 60s. Drawing some walks, too. Yeah, exactly, controlling the zone, Mm -hmm. as we've heard from Scott Service and Jerry DePoto. Sounds like a Britney Spears album. Control the zone. Yeah. That's all. I mean, that's really kind of what I had to add to that. I'm all for it. Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, I'm cool with that. Uh, the Mariners, do do we think this is sustainable? I don't know. But John Morosi of Fox Sports, he joined Brock and Salk earlier today and said that the Mariners' front office, they think it is. They believe internally, based on a lot of their modeling and, and, and metrics, that this is sustainable. Uh, that They've got a group of guys that they believe can put the ball out of T-Mobile, and there is enough there to dream on this team a little bit. Okay, hold up. Do you honestly, Curtis, if you have to answer this honestly, do you really think that Seattle's front office thought the team would be this good? No. They absolutely did not then think Then why that. would they expect all of that to continue? I think I'm not saying it yeah. won't. I actually I think I've been pleasantly surprised watching watching this team and it's been a really interesting team just to cover, but but I don't think Seattle's front office you wouldn't be having a rebuild year if no, that was the case. Exactly. They now they didn't necessarily come out and say rebuild. They said retool, which I reimagine, think sa- yeah, which saved them some face in all of this because they left room for well, if it does go right, then we look like geniuses. Which mm-hmm. to this point, or it was like a rope dope. Yeah, exactly. Like we'll we'll have you think this one way, but in actuality, we're putting together a team that we think can compete. Now the biggest cause for concern right now on this team is, in my eyes, it's the bullpen. You cannot sustain this level of play for an entire season. Games are going to get closer and closer, especially the deeper into this season you go. Guys are going to get hurt. As we've seen so far Mm -hmm. in the bullpen, Sean Armstrong, Gerson Batista, Anthony Swarzak, they've all missed time. Swarzak is back. He picked up his second save tonight. But... To me, I look at what the Mariners are doing, and if they really are going to compete this season, which Jerry Depoto still has not come out and said like that is our goal, like is to well, they almost said it wasn't there. I mean, they haven't outright said, but for instance, when they introduced uh, J.P. Crawford and Malik Smith and Justice Sheffield at that media, kind of like a welcoming media to the season kind of thing. Um, part of the narrative I feel that that was directed at them was how do you feel as players knowing that the plan isn't to contend and, and how do you feel as a front office trying to encourage players knowing that? I feel like it was it was like an unspoken kind of secret. And No, that's not what I meant to say, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, You're picking up what I'm putting down. I am. And you look at what guys have said, Marco Gonzalez especially, where – this spring, you know, he said there are a lot of guys in this clubhouse that have a lot to prove, and we're we're a competitive bunch, and we're not gonna you know take this sitting down. You can say a retool, whatever, but as as baseball players, as athletes, we're just wired to compete. That's how we do it. And right now, the Mariners are certainly doing that better than anybody, and it's not even close. Just how their offense has performed, how. They have just been able to bludgeon team after team, and they're also getting great contributions out of their starting pitching, save for Felix last night when he pitched just an inning due to flu-like symptoms. But Mike Leake is going deeper into games. Marco Gonzalez, we saw tonight, go into the seventh inning. And you know Wade LeBlanc, he pitched into the sixth inning mm-hmm. on Sunday. So we're seeing contributions from a lot of guys. You say Kikuchi settled down big time against the White Sox after getting off to a rough start. 
he was able to turn in a pretty decent outing despite not getting much help from his defense. But right now I look at the bullpen and I think that is the biggest question mark and, and what is going to possibly hold them back from truly building on this start. But I think what is most likely to remain true about this start is that offense. What about the defense? Does that kind of fall in the middle for you where you think these are guys that are capable of, of turning that around in terms of errors, leading the majors in errors right yeah, now? I think it's going to turn around once Kyle Seager returns Okay, because he's a uh, he's a former. But he's not set to return until June. That's right? true. And but one thing that I hope that the Mariners have learned from, especially last year, was reincorporating somebody into a lineup that is doing big things. Last year we saw them struggle to fit in D. Gordon and fit in Robinson Cano in August and September. Mm-hmm. But I think now you look at the Mariners' roster, he, Ryan Healy is performing, Daniel Vogelback's performing, Edwin Encarnacion's performing, Jay Bruce is performing. Those four guys have been rotating through the DH, first base, third base platoon. I think you bring back Kyle Seager, and maybe that means Dylan Moore isn't on the roster the rest of the season. But if you ask me, who would I rather have, Kyle Seager or Dylan Moore in my lineup? Even with the down seasons that Seager has had the last couple of years, I'd still take him 10 times out of 10. Mm-hmm. And I think the Mariners, it, look, it's a great spot to be in when you're wondering which hot bat am I going to have to sit today because that means that you're getting contributions from everywhere in the lineup. And these are good problems for the Mariners to have right now. And I think Scott Service has done a, a really admirable job so far in these first 13 games of being able to balance all of these guys coming in and out of the lineup. I have a legitimate question. Um, With the bullpen, is that something that you expect to improve over time, or do they just have a group that right now, like, this isn't it? This just isn't the group that they'll probably run with long-term, but this is just who they have now, and and they aren't necessarily guys that that they would carry long-term. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think a lot of the guys that are in this Like, why is it so bad right now? Why is it so bad? Because it's guys who have never been pressed into these kinds of high-leverage situations. Zach Roskup is not somebody who has been relied upon in his major league career. Corey Gearin has had some good seasons in baseball, but right now he's nowhere near what he used to be. Anthony Swarzak... He made his hay as a middle reliever. He's not a closer by trade, but he's kind of been forced into that. Ronis Elias, for the most part, has been a starter in his career. We're now seeing him be used as a possible long reliever, also maybe even a setup guy. Pitched well the other day. He did, and we're seeing his velocity go up a tick. He's in the mid-90s right now, which is very impressive, especially considering this is a guy who's been in the big leagues now for six, seven years, and the first six years of his career, he was a guy who hovered around the low 90s. All of a sudden, he's popping mitts and and really kind of opening eyes. It's like, oh, whoa, maybe this is a a legit piece we can add to this bullpen. The Mariners do have help at least scheduled on the way in the bullpen. Sean Armstrong, uh, Gerson Batista. You've got Hunter Strickland, who's a couple months away. So, I mean, they've got guys who have velocity, which certainly helps when you may not have legit nasty stuff. You can always blow it by somebody. So I, I think help is on the way in the bullpen, which is why I don't see it, uh, which I, why I, I'm hopeful that it changes, and that's why it won't remain true the rest of the way this offseason. Coming up next with last night's March Madness finale, the NCAA National Championship game, Virginia taking home the hardware We were asking the question, what is the hardest championship to win in sports? That's what we answer next. Curtis Rogers, Stacey Ross, Seattle Sports Tonight on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio on 710 ESPN Seattle. About 10 minutes from now, time for another edition of Four Down Territory. Right here on Seattle Sports Tonight, Seahawks insider Stacy Rost, myself, Curtis Rogers. We are with you for the next about hour and a half. You can listen to our show via the 710 Sports app, driven by your Puget Sound Acura dealers. The quarterback, Jake Keeps, he's out all week. 
He's in Hawaii. He posted pictures on his Twitter account. Yeah, I'm annoyed. Today, him going down water slides and... Having so much fun. Yeah, Yeah, cool. Well, guess what we're doing, Jake? Cool things, too. Yeah. Guess who got a granola bar earlier today? Whoa. And you got some goldfish and cupcakes. Got goldfish from Stacy. From me. That was her birthday present to me. Yep. Shout out to Goldfish. Bought it myself? Yeah. I mean... So yeah, you're having fun on your vacation in Hawaii, but... Exactly. We're all kind of having fun. Exactly. There are different ways to have fun. By the way, shout out to you guys for tuning in on this Tuesday night, late night. We do it for the late night crowd. So much love uh, to all you who have chosen to spend it with us. Shout out to all the truck drivers and the security guards, everybody who may be going to work at this time of night. So shout out to you. But uh, before the break, we asked the question, what's the hardest championship to win in sports? And Bob Grouse and Tom earlier today, they brought up that question as they were discussing last night's uh, NCAA title game between Virginia and Texas Tech. And in March Madness, you got to win six games, and you got to win them in a row, and there's no room for error. You cannot lose any of them because if you do, you're out. And so Tom Wassel brought up which of the major sports or the collegiate sports as well, mm-hmm. which playoff system is the hardest to win at? Here is what Tom's answer was. When you hear the mental toughness part about our program, it's real. We believe in it. And so this is just another time to get mentally tough, start recruiting tomorrow. Think about how hard it is to win five straight games, okay, in that tournament. And they'd already won their conference tournament, I believe, right? Yep. Didn't they win it? Okay, so that's, what, three more games? That's eight straight games just to get there, just to get there. And their coach is talking about needing to get more mentally tough. That is a hard, hard championship to win. Well, that's, I mean... Think about going to overtime in a championship game and coming away from that experience thinking, you know what, we need to do more. I'll say this as someone who lives and breathes college basketball from the months of October through early April. You look at teams who we all consider to be the Blue Bloods and the teams that win every single season, the Dukes, the Kentuckys, the North Carolinas. You look at the number of championships that those teams have won, and we all think it's every single season, but Duke has won, what, five titles in a 100 years of com- of competition? Kentucky or Kansas has won twice. Mm-hmm. Kentucky's just won a handful of times. No, I think the NCAA tournament is. I don't know if it's number one, but it is up there. And it, it, there's no room for error. That's the thing. It's not like a best of. No. You know, it's and that I on this other list that I was looking at, I'll count down from five in a second. But they had uh, the NBA championships as like the second. And I think still with that, like, you can still, you know, look at, like, Cleveland against the Warriors. You can still bounce back. You can lose three in a row and still win. Yeah. you there. So in the NBA, you can lose three games in each series, and there are four series. You can lose up to 12 games in a playoff and still win, a Nash, or still win a, an NBA title. And the same goes in the NHL as well. So are you saying then, okay, do you want me to read you these five and then you can tell me whether you agree with this or whether you think something else is more difficult? Yes, let's hear it. Because I can tell you right now, uh, college basketball is not on it. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yes. So number five, this is on it, but I think that they're looking at a very inclusive group of athletes Mm -hmm. is the triple crown. Of (laughs) of horse racing. Of horse racing, which, you know... There's not a lie there. It is incredibly rare. Yeah. You know, there well, hasn't been a it lot. it used to be rare. It's it's occurred twice in the last three years. Yeah, but that's still an isolated kind of deal. Yeah. But, you know? like, even the horses have no idea what they're doing. But are they as good as Secretariat? That well, is a question a, that my mother me- would ask you That's every always time. the measuring stick. And then Graz <laughs> always points out... When the Triple Crown occurs, like how far out Secretariat's lead would have been. Oh my God, my mom does the same thing. My mom yeah. and dad love Secretariat. They yeah. We watched it for my dad's birthday. And they would have been like, oh, Secretariat would have won by yeah, 30 lines. by 22 hands. All right, like, anyways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the next one uh, at number four is the World Series. 
Just the World Series, not the playoffs? Just the World Series. Well, they have the, the World Series trophy, so the Commissioner's Trophy, but okay. they said, um, I'm assuming that it means postseason two World Series. Yeah, I'm counting like all the of these as start two. Yes, to I'm counting all of it series, because I'm doing that with, with the NFL, too. I think baseball is very tough because all of a sudden you have to change how you manage games. Everything ramps up in urgency, whereas in the regular season you can afford to drop a game in June if it means you're going to get your starting rotation back in order, you're going to get your bullpen back in order. But in the playoffs, you have to be on your toes when it comes to managing those situations, and if if your pitcher is struggling at any point, normally in the regular season you would stick with him, but in the postseason, if he shows any kind of wear and tear, you yank him, and you get somebody else in there, and then all of a sudden that throws off your bullpen order, that throws off your starting rotation, and all of a sudden that changes the dynamic of how baseball is played. I think that makes it a very tough uh, postseason. I don't know if I agree, not with the next one, but but with higher up on the list. The next one is the FIFA World Cup trophy. I think they said this specifically. Oh, this is CBS Miami, by the way. I think they said this specifically because of just the numbers that go into it. They said it happens once every four years. We already know that. Um, Over 200 nations compete for a spot. Of all of those, only 32 qualify to play. And if your team is lucky enough to make it into the tournament, just half of qualifying teams make it past the initial group stage into the knockout rounds. And then you're one and done. Or you could be one and done. Yeah. It's single elimination. And then there's the possibility of a, a shootout where it's kind of anything. Right? It feels like a coin flip sometimes. It does. After and you've gone that far. Yeah. And I, I actually agree that that is one of the tougher ones, just with the sheer volume of people. And the, you have to the, be the level of talent as well. It's the best yes, in the world. That's the thing. Um, number two, I don't know that I would pit this that high, which, again, all of these, it is incredibly difficult, no matter what, to win a championship in a professional sport. But I don't know that I would pit this above the FIFA World Cup, and that's just the Vince Lombardi trophy for the Super Bowl. Hmm. And I, the only reason I don't say that, the, the NFL is so physically demanding and it's a grueling schedule and it honestly shouldn't be more than three or four games to yeah. reach that stage. But that being said, it is single elimination, so that's tricky. If you lose, you're done. That's it. But it's four games. Yeah. And, and three if you are a division winner. And we've seen it before where wildcard teams will get hot in the postseason win their conference, and maybe even win the Super Bowl. The Ravens in 2012, they did that. The Giants did it, I believe, both years when they knocked off the Patriots in 07 and in 2011. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not something that is out of the ordinary if a wildcard team makes it deep into the postseason. I think right now the NFL does have a good postseason. I mm-hmm. think they have a, a very – I think what they've done – in how it's formatted, I don't know if you can improve upon it. Uh, I would like a change in overtime rules. That, yes. But in how the, the seating overall, I agree. Is, is laid out, I don't know if you can improve upon that. Uh, got a lot of text here on the Coors Light text line about uh, which is the best um, playoff format. Got a lot of text coming in about the NHL. I was just going to say number one on this list is the Stanley Cup. Okay. And I think they say that because it's over a longer period of time, and it's just so intense. Yeah. Like, they described it as an eight-week marathon that tests the limits of even the best players in the world. The intensity of each game is I think is that's unmatched. why, specifically. It's kind of like football. Like, imagine if there were eight weeks. Yeah. It's wild. Eight weeks of seven-game series. And then, but one thing about the NHL playoffs, and the way it's structured right now is a little different than how teams or how the NHL has done it where you they reseed teams after each round where you know if you're the best team you get to play the worst advancing team and in years past when it was seeded 1 through 8 there were it was not rare like it was pretty common for 8 seeds to knock off 1 seeds it was pretty common for 7 seeds to advance i believe the LA Kings won the Stanley Cup finals as an 8 seed back in 2012. So it, it wasn't something that, you know, but I think that's a good thing. It gives teams that, you know, are, are 
good and they've made the postseason, it gives them a good shot at advancing, even if they are an eight seed and they aren't that team that, that captured the league's attention throughout the regular season. I think it's good to see Cinderella's advance. I think it's good to see teams that no one had projected to be in that position go far into the postseason. Yeah. No, I agree. I uh I don't overall I'm not mad at this list. No. I am I would like to see college basketball on it. Yes. But but now, overall, which, I agree. now which league do you think has the worst postseason format? I think still college football. Yeah. I think it's just it just feels messy sometimes. And that's my thing about it yeah. is that it's such a small pool for the best teams in the nation and and even then you're not quite sure if that's a fair matchup and i i just i don't know i it feels very select it ah, man i don't love the way sometimes that bowl games are selected and and paired up and it's kind of a bummer when uh teams that you would love to see go against other teams don't. I almost wish it was more open. Yeah. And I don't know how you do that because it's such a big field, right? Well, and as we've There's seen so over many the last, programs. As we've seen over the last four or five years, though, Clemson and Alabama have been – they have separated That's themselves so far away from the rest of the pack that is college football getting the right teams into well, the Well, and I just season. think recruiting so – specifically makes that something that isn't as exciting. Yeah. The games are fantastic. The last several Rose Bowls um, and championship games have been really interesting games. But, yeah, I don't know about that. Coming up next, it's time for another edition of Four Down Territory. Four of the biggest NFL questions we can find out there, including which Free agency move in the NFC West comes with the biggest risk. We answer that next. Seahawks insider Stacy Ross and Curtis Rogers here with you. Seattle Sports Tonight on 710 ESPN Seattle. This, this is Four Down Territory on Seattle Sports at Night. Yeah, D, 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 D. Four of the biggest questions in the NFL. Four downs, four opportunities to punch it in and get six on the board before we end the first half of the show. Curtis Rogers, Seahawks Insider. Stacy Rost here with you. Coming up in about 15 minutes, why are NFL players still surprised when quarterbacks are treated differently, when they get preferential treatment? We talk about that next. Let's get into some four downs. Number one. Seahawks insider Stacy Rost. Yellow. Answering four questions. Stacy, question number one, first down. Which free agency move in the NFC West comes with the biggest risk? I did think about this for a while, but I settled on Quan Alexander with San Francisco. So I looked at Clay Matthews, but he doesn't really have a major cap hit. It's three point five million. I believe it's um, like a one year deal too. Isn't well, it? it's I think it's two, but there's an out after. It's kind of like when Jordy Nelson was in Oakland, like it's a two year deal, but they could they could end that. Um, and uh, I think eventually I just decided Quan Alexander was the biggest contract I could think of. Um, it was what was he four years, fifty four million dollars kind of starts to reset the market for linebackers too so that also affects Seattle but he's coming off a torn ACL and played six games last year and he's never played more than 12 games in a season so again he's young so that's a plus but that's a lot of money for someone that's that's struggled to to stay on the field and in 12 games isn't a small number but again you're paying starting linebacker money to someone that that might leave you hanging or that might still struggle with that. So I think maybe they're hoping that he's young enough that he'll be able to brush that off and recover quickly and and bounce back from that ACL. But when I look at the NFC West, I didn't see any huge, you know, unless there's something I'm missing, but any like big ticket kind of signings where 
it wasn't something that had an out or something that was incredibly backloaded. So I did honorable mention Jason Myers with the Seahawks. His contract's pretty backloaded, where, and I think they also have an out after two years. So I think as far as Seattle goes, that might be their riskiest. And that's mostly because it's a huge position of need for you and you've struck out. And if you struck out on this one, it's pretty bad because it's the most you've spent yet. Number two. Second down here. Before we go any further, though, the 707 wants a shout-out. So. Shout-out 707. Shout-out to 707. That's Quan Alexander territory, because that's San It Francisco. is. Oh, wow. Ooh, sorry. Well. Well. Oh, well. Shout-out to the no, Nothing personal. No, definitely not. I had to pick one. <laughs> it's the rules of the segment. Now 707 hates me. Second down to you, Stacey. If the Seahawks stay at number 21 in the first round, which doesn't seem likely considering the amount of picks that they have, and we heard from John Schneider how he was just kind of gutted about the fact that they don't have a second-round pick this year. But if they do, in fact, stay at number 21 in this month's draft, which position would most justify making that decision? Yeah, this seems like an easy answer, and it's not going to surprise anyone, but I'm going to say defensive end. For two reasons. Number one, it's a position of need. And number two, it's an especially deep class. And I do I think they're going to stay at 21? No. Unless like a top three talent somehow falls to them that they have ranked as like a top three pick. But I don't know that that's happening. Um, but I think that that's the only way that you could really justify that pick being made is you are getting uh, some you know, elite level talent. You could be finding some all pros um, as far as this class goes and the talent level here. And I think that the reason specifically DE and not another position of need is you saw in years past, and this is it's rare that your position of need lines up with an especially deep class at that position. A couple years ago, the Seahawks were panned for not going heavy on the offensive line, and John Schneider was fielding questions. This might have been even like 2017. And he was like, we just didn't, it wasn't a really deep class. So to see it line up where, where what you need first and foremost, you'll, you'll have kind of the best pick. That might be pretty tempting. Number three. Third down. In an interview with the NFL Network, former Raiders head coach Jack Del Rio said, quote, don't be surprised if before it's all said and done, when we line up for the season next year, if Russell Wilson isn't quarterbacking somewhere else and the Seahawks haven't gone and gotten a quarterback they think of for the future, end quote. That's a hot take. That's a steaming take. What is sizzling? Like when they bring out a fajita. Oh, that is. Teca? That's that take. You you could hear that take coming from like a, a ways away. And when you do hear it, you're like, Ooh, oh, I should have gotten that. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder who's getting that order. Woo! What do you make of Jack Del Rio's comments? I don't know. I just think to me, it's something that uh, it's like a blanket statement, right? It's like me saying like, oh, the Seahawks would be open to trading Frank Clark. They're open to trading anyone. GMs are constantly fielding offers. What they would need to get to be able to trade Russell Wilson, I don't think any team right now is going to be willing to part with. Do I think Russell Wilson would be worth first-round picks from another team? Absolutely. He's a franchise quarterback. Uh, He's an elite player, but I think it would take a lot for Seattle to part ways. And I don't know. Jack Del Rio makes it sound like this is something that's going to happen like this offseason. And at least this season, Russell Wilson's still under contract, and Seattle has the ability to franchise tag him for next year. So, no, I don't see this happening. I think that's, this is just a way to say what everyone already knows, which is that anyone can be traded if the price is right. Let's get to fourth down. Number four. Fourth down, last opportunity. Put seven on the board before we head into the locker room, the end of the first half, I guess. Uh after reading the Bleacher Report tell-all about the sure Green Bay did. Packers locker room beef between Mike McCarthy and Greg Jennings, Jermichael Finley, and of course Aaron Rodgers, do you feel better about both the Seth Wickersham article about the Seahawks and also the Greg Bishop article about the Seahawks and their locker room culture? Yeah, honestly, it doesn't look as bad for Seattle. I think that this, it's its not saying that those things aren't uh, a little problematic, but if I'm, uh, if I'm a fan of the Packers uh, or the Seahawks and looking in, I would feel more uncomfortable with a head coach in a front office that's getting no respect and where the quarterback is like, I don't believe in any of you. I can run this and, and is hated by other players. That, to me, is worse than a team where um, 
the quarterback isn't especially close with some of the guys and guys think he isn't accountable. I would I would bet that there's a little bit of that at several organizations because it's the highest paid player. You're kind of this like middle management level where, you, you know, the front office, their success is tied to you. So you're going to have more insight and you're going to you're going to get more praise and you're going to have the jerseys that are sold with your number on them. So that's not like super weird to me. Um, but yeah, the, the Aaron Rodgers stuff is, whew, who knows, who knows how true all of it is, but that was, that was a problem. Yeah. And, uh, that's going to do it for four down territory here on Seattle sports at night. You bring up the Aaron Rodgers stuff and I've been, de- I've defended Aaron Rodgers in the past simply because of his talent and like, he's, he's a weird dude. So I kind of give him the benefit of that. Maybe he's a guy who likes to be kept alone or just not around people. But you look at the growing list of people that have issues with him and issues with his personality. It's not just Mike McCarthy. It's what Greg Jennings was a longtime teammate and Aaron Rodgers' favorite target for a good portion of his career in Green Bay. Jermichael Finley, another favorite target of his. And then... You look at other guys in the NFL that have had issues with Aaron Rodgers. And then, I mean, you hate to bring it up, but it's very out there in the public, his issues with his family, where he's very much estranged from his brothers and from his parents. I mean, that is completely Rodgers family business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't want to read into that too much, but it's a growing list of people that have looked at Aaron Rodgers and have said, dude, like... I can't get through to you and I'm trying my hardest here and you're just not allowing me. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. And it, it's just such a bummer because I think that even people who think Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback to ever play will look at Aaron Rodgers and say, but this is the most talented quarterback I've seen on a field, even more so than Tom Brady. There's a, there's a healthy number of sports reporters and writers and anchors that, that will say that and that believe that. And it just makes you wonder what might have happened there had there not been so much dysfunction. Coming up next, we go even further in to this Green Bay Packers story. If you haven't read it, make sure you check it out. It's on Bleacher Report. Uh, talking about the locker room turmoil between Mike McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers. Then you also got Antonio Brown, who takes shots at Ben Roethlisberger, uh, whether those are warranted or not. And then you've got what the, the fallout from last year's Greg Bishop articles and Seth Wickersham articles about the Seahawks, how ex-Seahawks may have intimated that Russell Wilson had been earning differential treatment. What do we make of all those, and why are NFL players who aren't quarterbacks still surprised when quarterbacks do get different treatment from front offices and from coaching staffs? We get into all of that next. Curtis Rogers and Stacey Ross right here, Seattle Sports Night on 710 ESPN Seattle.